Welcome to Dial P for Procurement, a show focused on today's biggest spin, supplier, and contract management related business opportunities. Dial P investigates the nuanced and constantly evolving boundary of the procurement supply chain divide with a broadcast of engaged executives, providers, and thought leaders. Give us an hour and we'll provide you with a new perspective on supply chain value. And now it's time to Dial P for Procurement. Hi there, I'm Kelly Barner, your host for Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now, and welcome to my monthly video interview. Um, now I'm joined by a very familiar face, at least a very familiar face to me, uh, and we were joking before starting to record that these end up being weird interviews because we mm -hmm. spend so much time discussing these things offline. Um, but I'm thrilled to be joined by my partner at Art of Procurement, Philip Eidson for what is, I think, going to be a very interesting conversation. So, hi, Phil. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Kelly. My pleasure. Thank you. And uh, as we were saying beforehand, it's always a little bit different being the uh, interviewee versus the interviewer. So <laughs> it's going to be an interesting one. I'm under the spotlight this time. Under the spotlight. And yet we're kind of flipping things. So mm -hmm. people know the two of us for advocating for procurement, helping people imagine the art of the possible, covering some supply chain issues. But today we're going to talk about a news story that gives us an opportunity to look at things from the supplier perspective and maybe advocate some solutions to the challenges that everyone is seeing, um, but really keeping that supplier experience and perspective in mind. Um, now, before we get to that, for anybody that hasn't met you, I want to give them a little bit more of a chance to know about your background. So you've worked as a procurement practitioner mm -hmm. in the past. Can you talk a little bit about where your experience is there? Yeah. And I was thinking beforehand, you know, I've got 22 years in procurement um, and it seems like it, it's so quick that you keep adding a number to that. Um uh, and of that 22 years, I think about 12 years was a practitioner, 10 years has been as a consultant, an advisor, uh, running the art of procurement, doing a bunch of other things. Um, but that 12 year of practitioner experience really actually started, um, I did an internship with GM um, where I was in material control. So I did a material control internship there and that led me to go to Ford Motor Company when I graduated. So I graduated through the Ford um, scheme uh, in the direct materials perspective. And so I started my procurement career in direct materials, and I probably spent half of it in, in the direct space and half of it on the indirect side, you know, across sourcing, category management, transformation, uh, supplier risk management, um, running a captive shared service center uh, up to a head of international procurement. So I kind of always deliberately try to check a lot of different boxes. And then from an industry perspective, auto, pharma, CPG, financial services, you know, those were kind of my practitioner days. And then as a consultant um, and a provider, you know, touched a bunch of other industries um, aside from that. Now, one of the points that you made, and I actually want to pause and clarify this because I know the terminology can be different, but this is mm -hmm. going to be really important to our conversation today. You talked about the fact that you were in direct materials. Yeah. So when we talk about direct versus indirect, and I know I grew up in retail, we called indirect not for resale. Mm -hmm. um, so when we're talking about direct materials in any company or industry, we're talking about the product or the service or the technology that's being resold for profit, right? Yeah, or any of the components or pieces that go into that product. Um, you know, different companies, different industries 
may define the direct and the indirect side slightly different, but the general rule of thumb, yeah, the direct is things that are going into that product that's resold. Indirect is everything else, essentially. And so before we get into the the story we're going to talk about today, there's one more thing I want to get your read from, because again, I think this is material. Mm -hmm. We're now over two years into this business about the pandemic. We're almost two years into every single headline being either supply chain crisis or supply chain disruption. What would you say is the general tone of the conversations that you're having, of the attitude that you see evidenced through social media posts? Where do you think people's minds are dealing with the economic conditions right now? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, one of the words that comes to mind is fatigue. I think folks are fatigued with everything that's going on and the unknown, especially as a procurement professional where, you know, you're judged in a lot of organizations on either or, or both these things, you know, the ability to make sure that the company has the right product or service at the right place at the right time, uh, at the right cost. And right now we're struggling with right place, the right time and the right cost um, through factors that in a lot of cases are kind of beyond a procurement professional's control, but procurement is really trying to manage. But then when you look at your 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 self-worth as a procurement professional, if you've always judged it on things running smoothly and saving money, which a lot of procurement professionals do, then it's been quite a beating, you know, the last couple of years on both those fronts. So I think there's fatigue. Um, there's still the unknown. Um, but you know, we've talked about for a long time about the un- unknown being the new normal. Um, and I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. And then I see a lot of, op- of individuals, but also that rolls up to organizations based on our leadership, seeing this as a huge opportunity. So actually, is this an opportunity for procurement to step up and show a greater value proposition to their organization? Um, and those that have embraced that, I think, are really um you know, are really doing well in their organizations in repositioning the role of procurement. Now, it's interesting. I used to have this good friend that would talk about when things get stressful, she would say, we all have a dance or a set of behaviors that we fall back on. And procurement has worked for a long time, truthfully, to get away from being cost-driven, to get away from bullying suppliers. But As the fatigue grows, as the pressure mounts, we're starting to see, I think, maybe evidence that a few companies are falling back to that dance or instinctive set of defensive behaviors. Mm -hmm. And a recent example of that was covered in a news story. Uh, The news story happens to mention Target and Walmart specifically, but there are many other companies dealing with this, especially in retail. And it talked about the fact that between inventory disruptions and uh, just plain far too much inventory on hand, they're starting to respond to the stress and the cash flow pressures by mounting what they expect of their suppliers. And so there were a few things about this particular story that were interesting. One is that the suppliers were named and quoted as Mm -hmm. complaining about these large retailers that they're working with. That's pretty unprecedented. Uh, But we also have some words from the retailers about how they view how they're dealing with this with regards to suppliers. So even some of the suppliers that were concerned about having empty shelves, uh, we know Walmart and Target both chartered their own ocean freight in order to get inventory here from China. They were concerned about seasonality and empty shelves. Uh, Now they have the opposite problem. Target in particular has $15.1 billion dollars worth of inventory that they wish they did not have. 
And unfortunately, as a result, their net profit margin is down by almost 50% year over year. Now, add to that the fact that consumer demand preferences continue to be fickle. People went from spending on home improvement to spending on trips and experiences and restaurants. And you have a very complicated situation where they're turning to suppliers and saying, here is our expectation of what we want you to do in terms of handling this. And those suppliers are not happy. Uh, so before we get into the details, any initial thoughts or perspectives based on what you've heard, what you've read about the situation that these retailers find themselves in? Yeah, the first thing I would say um, is that you know, Target and Walmart, and really our discussion goes, it's really more on retail as opposed to focusing on those specific companies. But they were kind of between a rock and a hard place because you have... Um, you know, uh, chronic shortages. So you are, the natural reaction to chronic shortages is to invest in inventory. You're investing in inventory then going into a possible recession where demand softens. But if they hadn't done that, I mean, they were, they were investing in their own brands to be the place where people know they can get the things they need when they want them. And so, you know, they took the call to invest in this inventory because they wanted to make sure that the shelves are fully stocked because if they weren't, then that's going to have a big brand hit from them as well. We went to Target and there was nothing on the shelves. So we went to Walmart, there's nothing on the shelves. Um, so you can certainly see why they made the decisions that they made and no one really had perfect information. Then the question is, okay, once you're in that situation, what do you do about it? So now they're obviously trying to mitigate the um, the impact of, of buying the inventory into a softening market. Uh, but I mean, we're going to see this play out everywhere. We've talked about chips for the last two years that's right so for the last i don't know three four months we've been talking about uh you know with some of the guests on after procurement around well chips now now we're investing in all this capacity we're going to build over capacity going into a weakening market we're going to have the same problem the prices are going to sink we're going to get deflation rather than inflation yeah. and this is kind of the cycle that's going to play out the next couple of years so we're probably going to see that in uh, in these situations with retail as well absolutely and in the short term what we're hearing from the suppliers, at least, is that retailers are saying, hold on to that inventory for us. Mm -hmm. I know we said we wanted it, but we're not ready for it just yet. They're saying, you know, instead of us coming and picking that up from your warehouse in China, how about you pay to ship the inventory to a warehouse in the U.S. and then we'll get it from you when we're ready? Or simply, and this is an oldie but a goodie, payment terms being yeah. extended. <laughs> People just not paying on the agreed upon schedule for the things that they've ordered. And in this particular article, there's one quote that I wanted to share. And I double checked this. This is a real company. The company is called Exploding Kittens. They make card games. Um, and their chief executive officer has said, we're having to hold back some orders in China. We now have stock in China that Target does not need. So we are shifting that stuff to the United States and have to use our own freight, ultimately eating into margins. Mm -hmm. And that's from Carly McGinnis, who is the, the president of Exploding Kittens. Now, there are a couple of things that are particularly interesting about this situation. We've talked about the difference between direct and indirect. Yeah. So this is a supplier of card games that would go on the shelves in Target for customers to buy. That's sort of the first part. But the second part is there have been exclusive collaborations 
between exploding kittens and target in the past. So games that the company makes that can only be purchased at target, mm-hmm. which would suggest a closer than your typical, even direct supplier relationship. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is, and I'm going to have you translate this for me. So this is in corporate speak. This is in buy side speak. So I'll give you a chance to think about it. And then you can try to put it into common language uh, for us. Target spokesperson said, quote, we have maintained open and transparent conversations with our vendor partners. So we heard what Exploding Kitten said, and now we've heard Target's official yeah. line. Any translation into what that actually means in real life? So, you know, obviously without knowing fully the meaning of what Target said, but being able to apply that to situations where I've been in automotive, yeah. um, that basically means we're telling you what, what is happening. Um, we're telling you that like, it's essentially, it's a one-way communication of this is, this is what's happening. You know, you will be, um, uh, we require you to do these additional things because we're not taking on board the inventory and there's not a two-way dialogue about that. It's a, this is what's happening. We've been open. We told you the situation. We told you why we, we need to do this, but you know, you don't have any say in this. This is what we're doing. Now, are you surprised at all? And there were three different suppliers that were named in the article that you and I Mm. both read. But are you surprised at all, not only that these suppliers are pushing back, but that they're doing so publicly through quotes from the C-level at their organization in the media? I mean, that's unusual, Um, Um, but they're either doing it because they have a tremendous amount of leverage. So they're in a situation where it's not like they can be uh, swapped out for another supplier. Um, or they're doing it because they're at their wits end. They've tried everything else. Communication's not getting through. Uh, they're not getting any responses. They're not feel, feeling like they've been heard. And therefore, this is their last resort. But as a last resort, I mean, that's a pretty dangerous game because, um, you know, it's going to be no doubt, if the, if that's the case, a long time before some of these larger organizations will want to work with a, a partner again, I say a partner, a supplier again, that go to the press when they have challenges. But if they're not being felt like they're being heard, then there's not really anywhere else for them to go. Now, we had also talked about the fact that at least the three examples in this article are all direct or merchandise suppliers. Mm-hmm. And again, we're just guessing. But if this is what we're hearing from suppliers on the direct side, which contributes directly to these retailers' top lines, can we extend that at all to what we might anticipate is happening with indirect suppliers that are less recognizable and a little bit further from the customer? Possibly. I mean, in the direct space, that's those materials are... Uh, they're, they have the more direct impact on the bottom line, a quicker impact on the bottom line. But what happens in the direct material space is that you've got things that are engineered into a product or you know you have uh, household brands that those retailers, that the, the customers demand those brands. So there's a lot of leverage in those. Uh, there's a lot of switching costs and it's hard to get out. And sometimes you've created yourself monopoly situations. Um, you know, that doesn't stop a buyer. And again, I did this in the automotive world 20 years ago, uh, going to your uh, supply base and saying, I'm going to take a blanket 5% cost reduction. And then, and if you don't agree to that, then you're not a true partner of, of mine, which ultimately is how some of these things go. Now in the indirect space, um, it again, depends on I would say the leverage um, that you have, and it's a, a little bit more nuanced because of the different ranges of products. Some things it's tough. You know, you're you're electricity supplier. You're not going to go and uh, have a 
um, a backwards and forwards over pricing and and demand and, and supply or anything like that. But you know, I've been in situations where um, I've um, been responsible for a contract that outsourced HR services for seven years for a company that only believed they were going to grow and then the recession hit and you go back to your provider and the provider is, well, the contract's the contract. Um, and so, you know, you may think that you can um, uh, bully me around in terms of trying to renegotiate the contract, but I'm going to stick behind the contract. And again, that's because in that instance, that supplier had all the leverage in the relationship. So, I mean, that's really where it lies. Um, it's, it's relationships and leverage that are going to determine um, who does what to whom and who tries to do what to whom, you know, as a result of, um, of all these challenges. Now, to your point about contracts, it's interesting because we do talk relationships and we hopefully work through relationships. But at the end of the day, in reality, everyone is reliant on that contract. I do not know, but I have to think that a lot of the things that are becoming points of contention between retailers and suppliers were specified in contracts. Does this raise concern that even though things are in writing, we can't necessarily enforce them into being? You know, I would question whether they are in writing or not, mm. in contracts or not, because, you know, in some cases, those contracts will try and be as loose as possible yeah. around uh, no actual numbers. What are you actually committing to? You know, in the direct side, you may commit to 100% of volume um, or 50% of volume without saying what your volume is going to be. And you can give forecasts around what that volume is, but those forecasts aren't contractual. So when it comes to actually the the order, the PO that has a volume on it, there's nothing until that PO that is ever um, committed to what the volume is. Um, and, you know, it's it's really just, well, we think it's going to be this, we think it's going to be that. So I think in some cases you've probably got that, which is then leading to this. Well, you intimated the volume would be whatever, and the volume is significantly lower. Well, there's nothing in the contract. Yeah, but you told us. You know, we've amortized our, our fixed costs over this volume because that's what you suggested. Um, and that's probably where some of the back and forwards is coming from. Now, we sort of started with this issue happening because retailers were trying to protect their customer experience. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of losing their supplier experience and partnerships as a result of the approach that they're taking. Yeah. But I know you actually have some, some interesting and I would say entertaining mm -hmm. thoughts about how this might actually be affecting the customer experience, even though companies don't realize it. Where do you see the connection between these two things? Yeah, it's it's interesting. As we said right at the beginning, everything is now a supply chain problem. Um, you know, we have an in, uh, an example where, um, I don't know, in May timeframe, we bought an interior door for our house. Uh, and you place the order and uh, I guess there's a shortage of doors, interior doors. And who knew, <laughs> you know, when the kids decided to put a hole through one of the bathroom doors. Um, and so we placed the order. We're told that the order is going to be, I think it was early July. So about six week lead time through a national retailer um, to just get a door. And then, of course, they delay it and they delay it. They delay it to a time when we're out of the country for a significant period of time. And then tell us that it's our problem that we're not going to be around in five days to pick it up because, um, you know, we're out of the country, even though it was them that delayed it. So there's this big disconnect, you know, which then creates lots of stress, you know, calling from overseas. And it took us probably, I don't know, three or four hours just to get somebody to say, OK, we'll hold on to this door for you until the day you get back from your trip. But don't be late. Um, and so now I've got a negative opinion of my experience with this brand you know, over 
something that was probably out of their control, but the way that they managed it is actually what's creating a negative customer experience. I think that people are empathetic generally to the fact that there's delays in supply chain, especially those of us in supply chain, but it's how you manage that as the um, as the, the retailer in this case that actually goes down to what my opinion of the retailer because the way they handled the situation. Well, and it is interesting because over the last couple of years, everyone and their mother is now an expert in supply chain. Mm -hmm. But I think with that, gradually over time has come a level of understanding and sophistication that we're no longer at the point where any retailer or provider can just wave their hands and say, well, you know, supply chain, right? Now people are starting to understand, okay, there are retail points, there are distribution centers, We hear things about Long Beach, California, so we understand there's shipping containers on ocean-faring vessels. I do think we may be coming to the end of the window where simply invoking supply chain crisis is going to apologize for every poor experience. Yeah, I think people will try it for as long as they can get away with it. You know, we've traveled a lot over this past month and all these hotels and airlines and airports have all complained about uh, supply chain issues for reasons why they can't do things. But, you know, they're still happy to to oversell their flights and, um, you know, try and work on the revenue side to maximize the revenue while cutting down on the cost side uh, and blaming supply chain issues as a result of that, which I think is causing big issues from a customer experience perspective. But something that I was also interesting that I noticed in England when I was there for a few weeks is that now the company's ability to hire is now in some cases being connected to supply chain. So I saw a couple of times where the employee supply chain was the reason why something couldn't happen. So it wasn't because they couldn't hire people or because they didn't pay enough wages to hire somebody for the positions they needed to fill. It was now a supply chain issue, but relating to the supply chain of people. So, you know, I didn't know that people were part of a I mean, we, it's interesting. We talk from a risk management perspective all the time about supply chains in service businesses. Um, but now that's making its way out into, you know, the excuses for why things aren't available um, is this people supply chain. So let's see if we can attempt to brainstorm some potential solutions. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at every sort of bad news story as an opportunity for all the rest of us to say, what would I do? if I were in this position or what would I not do and potentially learn from the choices of others. Um, If you're in procurement in a retailer that finds itself, again, net profit margin down over 50% year over year, $15 billion worth of inventory that you wish you didn't have, where do you even start to address this problem? What's within your control? Yeah, I think there's always short-term and long-term. Yeah solutions you know short term is about the situation now and long term often gets overlooked which is you know how can we stop this from happening or protect ourselves against this happening in the future from a short-term perspective you know when you have issues like this um you know in this instance that we're talking about today it's actually oversupply Mm -hmm. um you have to work really really closely with your suppliers um you know it's communication is so important um the why you why you're trying to take the decisions what are the outcomes you're trying to drive um what's your line of thinking you know what does the future look like or what what are the data points that are informing your view of the future because if you're managing this collaboratively your suppliers are going to be in a much better position to try and do everything that they can do to help. Mm-hmm. And they're willing to invest in you if they think it's a short term, like there's going to be a short term investment that I'm going to hold on to this stock, for example, because 
I know that in six months or nine months or when something turns around, the net impact of me doing that is going to be something that's good for me because these are the reasons. You know, when you're facing shortages, on the other, the other hand, because right now we've got this glut here, we've got shortages over there, you know, it's how can you help your supplier secure subcomponents or, you know, what it basically put yourself at their mercy to help them support and service you. Um, and doing that is what creates those bonds and those relationships versus just writing a letter to your suppliers and saying, I mean, that's the thing that I hated the most in automotive that we would do. Writing a letter to the suppliers saying, dear supplier, we're going to take 5% down from you. Or this is a situation that we're going to force you to hold on to your inventory or whatever it is. You know, yours, yours in partnership, uh, <laughs> Mr. or Mrs. CPO. You know, and we do that or our VP of supply chain or whoever yeah. it came from. And we do that all the time. And then, and then think that when things start to turn around, that that these suppliers are going to be our friends again. Um, and typically, it's all through because of this this notion of leverage. And we've got this. It's like one of the, I think one of the bit the worst things to come out of the professionalization of procurement is this focus on leverage. You know, when you think of the uh, the Krawcheck matrix and leverage suppliers, um, this idea that we'll just use our power to get whatever we want. Um, we've got to get away from that in the short term and the long term, but the short term especially to have these to, to be an open book. Um, you know, long term it's more around risk management. Um, you know, having alternative sources of supply, um, having more flexibility, building optionality in contracts. There's a lot of structure you need to set up to enable all those kind of things at scale. Um, but I'm always reminded of what a chief risk officer told me. A good number of years is that you know whoever bears the risk essentially is the one that that uh that, that wins financially you know there is a cost for bearing risk and as large company buyers we like to push as much risk as possible onto our supply base so you should expect to pay for that well and it is interesting because we're able to look at the set of circumstances that have played themselves out and say okay this wasn't a great idea that's not mm -hmm. a good look uh, maybe we understand why they did this in the beginning, but it certainly didn't play out. Retailers have ended up with all this inventory and not enough cash flow. But we will never know. Let's say one of the other alternatives was to sort of roll the dice and assume that supply chain disruptions were not going to be as bad as we were potentially projecting and risk that there would be things on shelves. We're never going to know in that alternate universe how would that have actually worked right. out and that's sort of the difficult thing about the situation we find ourselves in yeah it's very hard to scenario plan yeah. right now because there's so many different possibilities and it's hard to game out every potential um so you can't i mean you can't build risk mitigation plans for every single eventuality but you can look at what's the greatest points of failure you know where are the where are the places where um, you know, the risk is the highest and the impact, the severity is the highest. Mm. And at least understand those points and connections within your supply chain so you can plan mitigations around those. And from all the teaching and education and things that we do around that, we find that folks generally, organizations generally don't take that in procurement as seriously as they should do. And it comes to the fore when there's events that are happening like events that's happened over the last couple of years. It's going to be fascinating to me to see when whatever normal looks like becomes normal, whether we forget everything again or whether this has been such a big shock to the system that it actually changes the way that we think about our suppliers and about risk management and about the value proposition of procurement. Well, and what I wonder too, and I'm going to date myself by sharing this, but 
I remember when I was in college watching the Jerry Springer show Mm -hmm. and there would always be some horrible fight between friends or family members. Invariably, someone would throw a chair. I don't know where that milk always came from that people were throwing, but I used to wonder what's the ride home in the car like? (laughs) Assuming they came to the studio together and are leaving the studio together. And I wonder that a little bit about these relationships between these retailers and especially the specific suppliers that have spoken out publicly about the conditions that they're being forced to handle. Would your gut be that these specific supply relationships can be saved? Or do you think these suppliers are just assuming that by speaking out, they're trying to cover the risk they've already taken on and that it's over anyway. Mm-hmm. I would say, uh, you know, a couple of things. One is, because um, it depends, it depends on the way in which an organization worked with a supplier to help yeah. overcome some of these problems. You know, was that, um, was the buyer an advocate of you or was he a bully to mm-hmm. you? Um the other thing is, you know, when when all the dust is settled, one of the biggest determinants of future relationships is were those actions that that buyer, that client took based on truth or based on trying to take advantage of a situation? Um, and because I've been in negotiations where, you know, I, as a service provider in a large organization, some a, a buyer a client has come to the table asking for huge cost reductions based on you know financial struggles and then the financial results get published at the end of the quarter and you see there's really no such thing and so you think well was that really based on truth uh, that damages the relationship forever frankly but if you see that it's ba- that everyone's trying to chip in and maybe the mode that they did it wasn't the best mode of communication but it's a real problem that is trying to create an ecosystem that strengthens all its components coming out of it, then you can kind of say, okay, it was hard, but it was necessary. I maybe wish they'd have done it a little bit, uh, a little bit better in communication, but I can see what they were trying to do. And, you know, I'm going to benefit from that coming out of it. Um, those are, it, it differs from company to company, but that's what I would say in terms of whether a relationship can be saved or not. Now, here's the harsh reality. Do consumers really care Mm-hmm. if these retailers are bad to their suppliers. So is there actually anything at risk? We talk about what procurement should do, the yeah. type of relationships we want companies to have with their suppliers. But does the consumer actually care to the point where it creates a disincentive for these companies to behave badly? I mean, um, there's reputational risk for sure. You know, as you're looking at all kinds of different risk factors when you're building a third-party risk management program, you're going to look at reputational risk uh, as one of those components for you to do the right thing. Um, it, I guess it depends on the relationship you have with your customers. You know, if your relationship with your customers is based on being good for the world, um, then if you're seen as not doing that and not upholding to that value, then it's probably going to impact your customers. If your value proposition, um, you know, to the market is, I'm going to be the cheapest, then they probably don't care how you how you are able to provide those Part of those, um, you know, the things on the shelves or the services or whatever it is at that lowest price, because all you really care about is the price. Well, and it is interesting looking at this in the macro trend of ESG, so environmental, social, and governance-based initiatives, because especially B two C companies like retailers have made a concerted push over the last few years to 
connect with local communities, support small business, increase the diversity of their supply base, and have really put on a very strong promotional front about that so that consumers would know. So Mm -hmm. part of those brand value propositions are in fact based on at least a perception that these companies care about the world, that they care about communities, that they care about people, that they care about workforce. Mm -hmm. And so that does sort of raise the bar even if it just creates sort of an elevated concern around controlling the message of how this gets out to the the consumer base. We caught this article going through, but I don't know if the typical consumer would catch it. And yet these things always have a way. Once that mindset shift takes place, once people revert to the old dance and way of handling Mm -hmm. things, I have a feeling it sort of leaks out into other choices and will eventually become apparent. Yeah, I think that, you know, practices in one area of a business probably reflect uh, a culture across multiple areas of the business that that will show themselves, you know, in different ways that I'm not smart enough to understand or project how, but, you know, that that there's a culture that exists to do things in a certain way, you know, but that might be in a way the consumer expects because they only care about low prices. As an example, you know, having the right things on the shelves at the right price at the right time, um, my experience has been um does the com- does the culture of a company see every single stakeholder as being a potential customer or not so if you look at all your suppliers and see every single one of your suppliers as a potential future customer then you're going to treat those suppliers differently than if you don't take that view because i've worked as a consultant with organizations who do take that approach and so they, their approach to procurement was very different. And this is a, a huge global organization with a very uh, well-known brand. You know, they see every stakeholder as being a potential customer or an actual customer. Uh, they approach their supply base in a very different way than those that don't necessarily think like that. And to that point about culture being pervasive, even though it might be different teams in an organization, I have to think it's an incredible challenge to on the one hand, try to create a positive, rewarding, frictionless experience for your consumer base, while, you know, with the other hand behind your back, you're sort of bopping a supplier over the head and forcing them to help you deal with these inventory and cash flow issues. Those two experiential ends of the supply chain, it does feel like they meet in culture. Yeah, I think that what you'll what you find, and I found this in automotive again, is some of those directives, you know, they are led from the very, very top of an organization because at the very top of the organization, they're looking at, you know, the dollars and the cents and figuring out how do we overcome these problems that we see in a way that is going to um, maintain shareholder value. That is pushed down in terms of actions. The folks who are undertaking the actions to make that, you know, to to operationalize that direction, um, you know, are probably caught in this balance between you know, making sure that they're portraying the the message and the strategy of the business while recognizing that sometimes they're asking for extraordinary things from their partners. Yeah. And so the way that they do that is the way that suppliers will come out of that experience, you know, that that yeah. the whole experience. Are they going to come up with that thinking, look, I know this is from above, don't really agree with it. I know you're trying to help, you know, you're trying to protect me from the system. I'll try and do that and we'll figure out how we can collaborate together versus are you being the bully who is saying this is a directive, I'm going to hide behind this and I'm just going to send email after email demanding that you um, do what this says because that's how I measured 
in enforcement, it really it's on us as procurement professionals to decide how we're going to manage that, even if the requests don't seem fair in the nature. Now, we have quotes from three suppliers in this article, but we know that large retailers have many, many, many more suppliers than that. If instead of being managing director at Art of Procurement, you were, say, the president and CEO of Exploding Puppies Mm -hmm. uh, that made card games and, and board games, what advice would you take? So what how would seeing this article, how am I hearing this conversation um, affect the way that you deal with retailers in protecting your business? Yeah. Any advice for other suppliers? Um, I'd probably change my brand from exploiting puppies. <laughs> um, but um, I mean, it depends on how important a client, you know, uh, well, yeah. most likely this isn't a, a, a client by client issue. You're going to get it from across the industry. Mm-hmm. So as an industry, you're going to recognize, you know, these are kind of hard times for my industry. How can I best support my clients get through this time in a way that doesn't negatively impact my business, you know, to the extent where I can no longer support and provide whatever it is I'm servicing to my clients. So you've got to recognize that this is not just a problem that is one supplier that has, it's going to go across the board. Um, You know, at that point, you're kind of deciding from, from a portfolio perspective, which of the clients strategically do I want to align myself most closely with because of where the future of my business is going? And is their reactions and the way that they're handling this a determinant in where I believe that should be? Because I think it's fair to say, you know, even people who say this isn't true, as a business owner, you invest the time, you go above and beyond the call of duty with those clients who you have a really strong relationship and believe would return the favor. Um, and those that you want to invest in. So that's really where you're looking is where is that now? You know, I know from automotive, there'll be times when, uh, because in in automotive, there are so few end customers, you know, in the US, you had the big three. Well, if, if you're in the Midwest, if you're a Midwest provider of automotive plastic moldings, you've got three suppliers, uh, three ultimate suppliers to supply to. So, and all three of those have probably got faced with the same issues at the same time. Um, if you make enemies of one, then that's a third of your potential total mm. total market gone. Um, and so sometimes you just got to take it. Um, and that's one of the things that I really struggle with, you know, and one of the motivators for starting out of procurement was to get out of, to get procurement out of that way of thinking. Yeah. When you're a provider, that's kind of the reality of the situation. If you're uh, in an industry where you have taking yourself down a path where you only have two or three or four potential clients. Now, what lessons should the rest of us take from this. It, to some extent, we're all dealing with the same challenging circumstances. Um, we have varying options and alternative alternatives available to us. Uh, but what are sort of the general takeaways uh, from, from thinking about this story and watching the impact that it's having throughout the supply ecosystem? Yeah, I would say from a buyer perspective, Sometimes you can't change the fact that you your company needs to make hard decisions and do things that you may believe are out of, uh, you know, beyond what is reasonable uh, things to ask from your suppliers. The way you, what you are as a professional is in control of how you manage that situation. And so the way that you manage it, you know, the empathy you show, the communication, kind of being as open book as possible can change the outcome. You know, it's not going to change how difficult it is on a supplier, but it may change them from saying, well, no way, and getting into a fight, you know, where people start talking about contracts and then start talking to the press versus 
How do we work this out? I can't really do that. Can do this. Maybe there's something you can do over here. If you can reduce my cost to serve you over there a little bit, that gives me a little bit more wiggle room. How can we be um, collaborative to solve the problem? Um, I think that's the first thing. And the second thing, you know, that I'd always say is around risk management and optionality and just, you know, how are we thinking long term around what our points of failure of having multiple sources um, and, you know, not creating monopolies where ultimately the supplier uh, actually has the leverage because you've got no one else you can buy from. You know, it's interesting because you've mentioned empathy a couple of times today. Mm -hmm. And I happen to know this is sort of like time travel. By the time people are watching and hearing this interview, the episode of Dial P that was previously released is about empathy. Because I do think we're in very difficult times. I think you're spot on with your points about fatigue. You know, we're so focused on supply chain resilience, but the human resilience, I think, is starting to fall off Mm -hmm. our tolerance for uncertainty. We're just we're exhausted. And it seems like so many of these problems, the longer they go on, the fewer solutions we actually have. And yet you're also right that as a business owner, you have to make tough decisions sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, Knowing that I'm totally catching you off guard with this. (laughs) Any final thoughts that you want to share? on this topic of empathy, um, because I do think it's hard in ordinary times, but it's that much harder given where we actually are today. Yeah, look, you know, people buy from people. We're all, we, we're, we've all got this this cloak of a corporation behind us, of, you know, a corporation of one or a corporation of a million, but we're still just individuals trying to transact and do business with each other and, you know, make our days as, um, as simple as possible, uh, you know, in in service of reaching all of our goals and achieving our goals. You also have no idea what any one person is dealing with at the time when you're uh, engaging with them. So empathy, I think, is always really important. Um, you know, you think about how, if you are a supplier, how do you react if you get an email that's really threatening, demanding, and bullying um, versus getting an email or a phone call from your buyer which explains the situation, talks about the challenges and offers up like, how can we figure out, you know, how we get through this together? Um, And that just changes the conversation in my mind um, and shows that, hey, we're working together individual to individual rather than I'm going to hide behind this big company that I am and a directive that they've sent out because, you know, it's not my problem. Now, to that point, I feel like I would be messing up what people would ask if I didn't bring this conversation full circle and ask, did you get the interior door yet? We'll see. By the time this goes out, <laughs> uh, it will be clear. They gave me until today to pick it up um, as an extension to my, um, you know, the five days or something that we're supposed to uh, uh, have. Now, I'm kind of 50-50 whether it's going to be there when I turn up. So uh, we shall see. To so be continued. <laughs> and to that point... Bonus credit for being here with me recording this interview as opposed to being at the retailer picking up your door. So especially if you get there and the door is gone, I feel like you at least get extra credit and bonus points for for making the choice to be here. I know who to blame. (laughs) (laughs) Well, fortunately, I live too far away to hell and you really don't want me installing doors. So um, hopefully it's there when you get to the store to pick it up. Um, Phil, this was fun, I think informative, hopefully educational for people. If people watching this interview later have questions, including the installation status of your door or anything really about 
what procurement can do, how we should working, be working with our suppliers through these times, and even generally speaking, the role of empathy and relationships in business. What is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. You know, one is that uh, all of these types of topics we create a lot of content on at Art of Procurement. So anybody always go there, artofprocurement.com. You're going to find blog posts, podcasts, videos, the whole works on a lot of um, a lot of topics related to procurement that can help you. If you'd like to reach out one on one, I'm always available on LinkedIn. So send a LinkedIn request over. Um, I will, uh, you know, I read everything and respond as quickly as, uh, as I can. So that's probably the best way, uh, to connect personally. Awesome. Please do check out Art of Procurement's resources. Please connect with Phil on LinkedIn. And of course, follow Dial P on LinkedIn. Reach out to me if you have comments. I always encourage people, don't just listen. Let this be a two-way discussion. So you can always add comments under any post on any social media platform where you find this. You can direct message me. Um, and please make sure anyone that you think would benefit from this conversation and information gets it. Send it over to them. And then let us know because it's important for me to know which topics and conversations resonate and how we're actually helping everyone handle today's challenges better. So thank you, Philip Eidson, Managing Director at Art of Procurement, for being with me today. Thank you to everybody that's listening and watching later on. I'm your host, Kelly Barner, here on Dial P for Procurement on Supply Chain Now. Thank you for joining us and have a great rest of your day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dial P for Procurement and for being an active part of the Supply Chain Now community. Please check out all of our shows and events at SupplyChainNow.com. Make sure you follow Dial P for Procurement on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook to catch all the latest programming details. We'll see you soon for the next episode of Dial P for Procurement.